0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord And the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance, You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Moses came and told to the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. This, friends, is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, I am, of course, Chad, one of the pastors um, with King's Cross, and I appreciate the fact that we get the opportunity to celebrate mothers on this day. Um, It's a good reminder, as is all holidays, um, that for us to take a moment to reflect, and as Aaron mentioned, to also acknowledge and to celebrate motherhood in general. In fact, the investment of mothers, the very nature of mothers, even Paul himself refers to his affections for God's people in the church as that of a mother, acknowledging what God has instilled in mom's um, and the care that they show and they give. And we celebrate the image of God in mothers as they, they serve the people of God, whether or not it's biological motherhood and you're, on, uh, you're able or not or choose not to, or if it's even spiritual motherhood, uh, which is a very real thing. Uh, moms or older ladies investing in the children and younger ladies and men in the, in the church. Um, so we celebrate all those things, and it's really interesting, seems to me at least, an interesting coalescence of events throughout this week, as we've even had a National Day of Prayer on Thursday, and hopefully you were able to take some time to, um, to specifically pray intently over things going on throughout our country, throughout your life, throughout our church, throughout the world, and to really intentionally do that, because we want to be a church that praise. God wants to hear from us, and it's healthy and helpful for us, just like we're talking about in Exodus here, where God's people hear from him, and and, and we, we see last week, we talked about the problem was they complained against him rather than going to God as Moses does, and so we want to be a people that praise, but also at the same time, most recently, you may have seen the reports uh, news reports about the potential overturning of, uh, of, of the decision in Roe v. Wade, which has uh, got great implications throughout our laws, uh, decisions. Uh, it's a precedent for, um, for the right to privacy directly connected with uh, termination of a baby in abortion, uh, a medical abortion, intentional. Now, in case you guys didn't know, to have a miscarriage is medically labeled a uh, um, a natural abortion or some kind of a medical abortion, there's a, there's a terminology, they, they, they categorize it that. So when you hear really high numbers, like one in four women have had abortions, often that's all together, but there are still a lot of lives that have been lost throughout the years since Roe v. Wade, and it's a very hot topic for various reasons, because I, I personally, as, as many here are and in the church, I'm, I'm pro-life. Because I'm pro-God, who is pro-His image-bearer. But what that means, what that means needs to be worked out in a gracious way as we navigate these, these topics. Because also like me, you very well have family and friends who are in different places in, these, in, in the spectrum politically or appro- wherever they are. In agreement, in, 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 in being affected directly. Uh, maybe even have gone through procedures themselves and feel the weight of judgment if you come in hard and ungraciously and without humility. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because we're talking about the importance and the weight of the image bearers of God and God himself here in this text is putting his name on his image bearers. He, He is speaking to Egypt, not Egypt, see I say it wrong, He he has taken Israel out of Egypt, we have moved from slavery in Egypt, we've moved from bondage, he has led them safely through the Red Sea, and God has been teaching them, and last week we discussed, to trust him with everything, and now today in this passage we are focused on where God meets with his people at Sinai. And we need God to meet with us here. So will you pray with me that God would so that we can look at this text and hear God speak? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. And God, I pray in no uncertain terms that you meet with us clearly today. God, that the power of your word would transform our life so it makes us more like Christ. God, that we'd hear the weight of the call and command that you have on our life, and that we be ready to trust you and to obey you. Let me ask all this in Christ's name, Amen. There's something referred to as a liminal space. Have you ever heard of that word? It was new to me, so I'll share my vocabulary expansion with you. Liminal space. It's a it's a place. Uh, it's kind of it means to be on the precipice of something new, but not quite there yet. You're in between, okay? Maybe you could relate to this. It's like, think about like college students. You know, you're not at home, you're out at school, you're getting bombarded with all these new experiences, but you're not, a full gr- you're not considered a full-grown, responsible member of adult society yet. Okay? That occurs at your graduation where we celebrate you leaving the liminal space to go out into the real world and be a contributor, right? Okay, rather than a partier, or whatever it is you did in the four years. My, my experience in college was far different from many people's experience in college. I went to a military, a military college. My liminal space was very structured. Uh, my, 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 my liminal space was ordered, but it was intended to get to form you into a very specific person, kind of person, let's put it that way. Uh, there's a, a, the first weeks there called Hell Week, and it's very well named Hell Week. Because compared to anything you've done prior to that, it was a hell week. Uh, And they, they, they put all they could into making sure you did not enjoy that time. Uh, whether it be physically exerting, uh, stressing you find, I think they use my, I think some people use my toothbrush to clean the floor in, in a room one time because they were made to, but it was weird. Okay. Th- there's all kinds of stuff that they do to you. By the way, they warned me I didn't use the toothbrush, but it, it was, it was used up for cleaning corners in a, in a, in a, um, <laughs> a room, but, um, my, my point here is that there were things that they were trying to do to form us during that time. So we had tons of rules, tons of laws that they set up. They had a whole fat blue book, they call it. And, and really the fun of being a VMI cadet is breaking, figuring a way to get away with not following rules in the blue book and not get in trouble for it. Okay, just a heads up. That's kind of the, th- that, that, is, that is one of the arts of, of navigating VMI because there's almost no way you can avoid it. But at the same time, there's also the honor code system. The honor code system is laid on you. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. It's heavy. It's weighty. And if you do any of those things and you get prosecuted by it, which is by a a jury of your peers, you're immediately dismissed. Uh, I was at a place, I guess it was this small group or wherever we were this last week. Anyway, the topic conversation came up of... um, um, I'm trying to think of it was. Oh, all-nighters, all-night study, studying. And I didn't share my story because I remember staying up all night in school working. And, and what happens when you get uh, what's called drummed out of VMI is that, that they literally wake the entire studio, student body up at a completely inconvenient time. They let you go to sleep, and it's about 1, 2 in the morning, maybe later because a lot of people stay up at 1 a.m., but 2 a.m., and then they start running drums. It's literally drums. And you know what's happening, and it gives you, the first time it happens, the last time it happens, it gives you chills. Because you know you're about to walk out on the stoop, that's right in front of your room, and somebody's going to be named that has been kicked out. Okay. I'm I'm feeling it right now. Um, One night, now they call it spring cleaning, is what they call it. They call it spring cleaning when you get back from Christmas break. Because guess what happened right before Christmas break? Exams. And when you come back from Christmas break, all the people that got accused and prosecuted for cheating on exams get rolled. So one particular night, I apparently had a lot of studying, stayed up late. I was up all night and had to go out on the stoop three or four times because they did it all in one night. <laughs> Two a.m. Okay, oh, called a name. Three, called a name. It's a somber experience. It's it's reverent because. It's a serious weighty issue. There's one time I could think of somebody screamed out obscenities, and that was handled very sharply. But it's a part of shaping us to be a certain way. Because when I graduate, and it's the one time I came to Sonia, I'm not wearing my class ring, you are a VMI alumni. And it has a name, a title. It comes with something. It really does. There's not anybody I know the VMI, VMI alumni that wouldn't try to go out of their way to help me if I called them. And I would do the same because you've been through something and you've come out on the other side and you bear the name of a VMI alumni. Now that's nothing compared to bearing God's name. There is far more weight here. And God in fact is in this liminal space somewhat before Sinai. And he's coming to this place to intentionally formally covenant with his people. Now, now, here's what I'm not going to do today, I can promise you. I'm not going to go through the details of the law. If you were coming here thinking, hey, we're going to get school to find out all about all the little nuances. I really was wondering about that particular marriage law, divorce law. No, we're not doing that today. I'd love to answer those questions on the side. There's, there's categories people like to think about these laws, and I'll give them to you here. Uh, a lot of times people like to think of these as terms of civil laws which govern the nation of Israel, encompassing not really only behavior but also punishments for crimes. So think of Israel as a nation. God gives them laws to govern as a nation. They're unique, so it calls for death penalties and such. There's also ceremonial laws about being clean and unclean and what that looks like, the kinds of sacrifices, the temple practices, all those things that pertain to um, ceremony and cleanliness before God. And then there are the moral laws, which are declared what God deemed right and wrong. And most uh, familiar we are with those of the Ten Commandments, just blanketly, right? Now, God gives all these laws to Israel, and he does it after a lead-in of what he's trying to accomplish. And what he's trying to accomplish is, is quite clearly laid out in Exodus nineteen three through 6. See, God made a covenant with Abraham to make him a father of a great nation, a nation that would bless all the nations. His descendants ended up in Egypt in slavery. But God reaffirms that covenant at the beginning of Exodus. We've read this. We've seen it. He comes in. He rescues his people. And the entire time we've looked at the fact that there's a theme of the Lord's name going throughout the story. He tells Moses his name. Who am I to say sent me? I am who I am. I'm the God that's unchanging. I am, the, I am the dependable, promise-keeping God, and I will keep my covenant with my people. They didn't know me that way because you will, because I will, I will redeem you as I promised and make you a nation. His name displays the power to Egypt. Remember God's name and his power over all of the gods of Egypt where he embarrasses and crushes every aspect of what Egypt holds up as good and right and true and powerful. And the Lord shows himself to be stronger. After the Red Sea, when he leads his people through safety, he again tries to remind them, trust in my name. Trust in my name. I will provide. I'm here for you. You don't need to complain. Don't worry. I've got a plan. I will provide. Here's some food. Here's some water. And now at Sinai, God says, take my name. Actually, it resembles a marriage ceremony. That's another uh, kind of um, liminal space where you're engaged But you're not there yet. You ever spent some time in there? Extended period where you're like, oh, we're doing it. You know somebody who's been engaged for years? That's a long liminal space. Some people engage for a week. I don't know if I've heard of that before. I mean, it probably has happened, I'm sure. Decided and did it that day. But that's an in-between space, and there's a lot about this that resembles a marriage ceremony. There's terms of a covenant. There's an exchange of vows. Uh, In chapter 24, there's a covenant ceremony. You think about going to a ceremony for marriage. Now, what happens after the marriage ceremony? They get to the end. They say, and I pronounce you husband and wife, and it's official, right? Well, here's what God is trying to accomplish. Look at Exodus 19, 3 through 6. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So what is God trying to do? First, he reminds them, hey, you saw how I saved you, right? I carried you out on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, here's the deal. These are the terms. If you carefully listen to me and you keep my covenant, you will be my own possession. The translation of the CSB, I don't appreciate it as much, actually. Elsewhere, you'll see it's, it's actually more appropriately my treasured possession, it's, it's a term that kings would use about that really special gift that probably doesn't come out of the safe. That, 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 that possession, the most important thing, not often used about people. And, and here God's saying, if you listen to me, if you keep my covenant, you will be, out of all the nations of the entire world, my treasured possession, My people. And what does that mean for them to be my treasure possession? It means you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. My kingdom of priests, my holy nation. You, among everyone else, will be priests for me. And that's significant. That is incredibly significant. Because what does a priest do? It's unique here because God actually establishes one particular tribe As the priest for Israel, but he tells the entire nation, you will be my kingdom of priests. And what a priest does in its basic, in the most basic sense, is represents the people before God, intercedes on their behalf. And comes from God to the people, representing God to the people. So the priest, if they're a kingdom of priests, then God's saying, for all the nations of the world, you represent me. And you intercede for them. And you're a holy nation. So like Aaron mentioned, and what I believe God is doing here and what he's demonstrating is God is trying to show us that God's people bear his holy name before a world that's dying in sin without hope. God's people uniquely bear his holy name before that world. And in this passage, when we look at this, and in this entire section, I hope we see, there are two important realities at play here. And the first one is that God himself is holy, holy, holy. And I say holy, holy, holy on purpose. Exodus 20, 18 through 21, as Lance read a minute ago, says this, all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of ram's horn, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. Now this is just after God said, go tell the people what I'm planning on doing, and then he comes and he speaks directly to them. It actually says when God gave the Ten Commandments, if you didn't realize this, the unique thing about the Ten Commandments in particular is that he spoke so the people directly heard him. All the other laws after that, Moses went up and talked to him himself, got him, recorded them. come back. And there's a reason for it. And it's, it's stated here. It says, when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. This is their response to God's presence. And then they tell Moses, hey Moses, hey, but you speak to us and we'll listen. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. Now, I don't know if the God of your imagination would kill you by his very presence, but this is not unique. Because every recorded instance in Scripture where someone stood in the presence of God, they fell on their knees, and they cried out for him to get out of their presence because they weren't worthy, because they were scared, because they were afraid. They were just like Israel, where they said, Please, Moses, you talk to him because we're going to die. And Moses responds, oh, so graciously, don't be afraid. For God has come to test you or to show you a little of himself, to to tease, if you will, his, his presence, his glory, so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. So the reason that, that God didn't speak anymore is because he only came for a moment so that they would see what small percentage of his presence so that they would fear him and not sin. He was trying to instill in them a reality of the weight of his glory and who he was so that it might carry with them into the future. So when they get to choose and think, God said do this, but you know what? That looks really good. And they think, yeah, but God's scary. So I'm going to do this. It was a grace. We often, too often, don't live as what the early church fathers called corum Deo, like before the face of God. God is always present and always in every place, but how often do we sit in our own quiet time and feel like act like we're alone. That nobody's watching. Nobody sees my thoughts. But we don't honor the glory and holy weight Of who God is the way that Israel saw him here. But what does holy mean? What does actually being holy mean? Well in its basis term it means to be separate. The term really in a simple definition is to cut, okay? To cut, a cut apart. Actually think about a cut above, right? If you were to say something is a cut above to be holy, it's above and separate, it's holy, it's a cut above everything else. We often think of holiness as purity, but it's not simply that. It is pure but it's separate. But I think what's important for us to consider is how is God specifically holy? And just like we looked at this place where Israel responds to his holiness, Isaiah does a similar thing in 6, chapter 6 of his book, where he says this, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. Not the way I pictured an alien. Did you? I'm not an alien, an angel. I pictured an alien that way. You ever picture an angel with six wings? Um, six wings with uh, two. This is what they did with their wings. Two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. So, so they're, they're always tending God. They're present around the throne. And they got six wings. Two of them to cover their face. Two of them to cover their feet. And two to fly. And what is it they say as they fly around the throne? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Armies. Angels, spiritual beings, not us, cannot even stand in the Lord's presence without covering their face. Covering their feet. That, that does, doesn't that speak to what Moses, when he, when he uh, takes his shoes off, God says, take off your shoes, you stand on holy ground. And they said something very particular, very specific. It's important to remember, holy, holy, holy. Now, in the Hebrew language, there's something they do for emphasis. It's called repeating. Like, if I'm walking along and I fell into a pit, but I want you to know, man, this just wasn't a pit. This was a pit pit. Okay? Whenever whenever Jesus was trying to really get his disciples' attention— We see it interpreted often as verily, verily, or it's actually amen, 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 true, true, this is true, true, verily, verily. Pay attention, guys. You know, if I'm up here and I'm like, hey, guys, look at me, look at me, you know, that kind of thing. Or you're like teaching five-year-olds and you're trying to get their attention, like it's really important, guys, up here. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying verily, verily. Now, this is the only attribute of God that is said three times. Because if you really want to get it down, the third time tops it off. God's not mercy, mercy, mercy. God's not justice, justice, justice. God is not grace, grace, grace. God is not love, love, love. The seraphim say God is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. For God, it's not simply that he's separate, but he's transcendent. It's not simply that he's pure, but he's transcendently pure. It's not that he's just a cut above. He is infinitely a cut above everyone else. It's why when they stand in the presence of God, Isaiah falls on his feet and says, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the king. We preach and we teach and we hear about God's grace, his love and his justice and we should. We absolutely should. But we don't talk enough about his holiness because he is holy and good. It's so far above and beyond us. Like, like even we were encouraged weeks ago by Micah that we see him and drop like Israel and we fear him. And then when we fear him and we fall before him, he lifts up your head and says, Don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear. So, how is God holy? He is separate from us. But does his holiness actually matter? Yeah. Sigmund Freud who is a well-known psychologist, maybe I'm getting that wrong. I know there's a lot of difference between the two. He's a thinker in matters of the mind, how about I put it that way. But Sigmund Freud viewed religion as the unconscious mind's need for wish fulfillment. He he said that because people needed to feel secure and absolve themselves of their own guilt, Freud believed that they choose to believe in God, who represents a powerful father figure. Like, like the world, the storms, the sicknesses, everything around us was too much for us to bear in ourselves. right? We can't control the rain. We can't contra- control the hurricanes, the tornadoes. We can't control cancer. We can't control these things. We can't control famine when the crops are bad and the droughts. And so what did Freud suggest? He suggests, so they created this God that could bring them comfort, some power that they could trust in. The problem is, every time we meet the true God of the Bible, we don't feel comfort. It's fear, because he's so holy. Every experience is like Isaiah, woe is me. And R.C. Sproul, who if and I didn't recommend this before, but I have this book here. If you haven't read this, I can I can commend it to you. There are many uh, theologians and maybe pastors you've heard who read this once a year uh, because it is uh, so rich uh, a discourse on God's holiness. I have a couple copies. I'm not. I wasn't going to come up here and do a book handout, but I have a copy here um, that 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 is mine, and I would happy to try to get one to you. We don't have them on the table over here, um, but R.C. Sproul in this uh, book says this: We often describe. By compil- We often describe God by compiling a list of qualities or characteristics that we call attributes. He's loving, just, merciful. And the tendency is to add the idea of the holy to this long list of attributes as one attribute among many. But when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is the Holy Spirit. Everything about God is holy. And so as sinful creatures, we should rightly be be crippled by that. We We are so far below who God is, but his love is holy love, and it's perfect and pure, and because he is holy, we can trust him. Not the God Freud speaks of who's comfortable, who's a God we've created ourselves, but he's the holy God who creates all things perfectly, and then he sees us in our sin and he looks on us with holy compassion and holy mercy. Does his holiness matter? Absolutely, because God is not arbitrary. He is holy and he is good. Not only does God look on us with compassion, but he wants to make us holy. He wants to consecrate him, uh, his people, So not only is God holy himself, but he is the only one that can declare something holy. And if we look at this particular passage again, we see that God's intention with his people is to create a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And he starts out by going right into Exodus 20, 1 through 17, which is the Ten Commandments. Now, you may have looked at these before. You may have read them. You may have seen them on a list. There's a lot of debate about the commandments in terms of trying to get them in public squares, right, to have them in courthouses, all that kind of stuff. We want to have them in places. I don't know how many people follow them, but Nonetheless, the Ten Commandments are probably well known. But here's the thing I want to draw your attention to. It's, I think, we take some of these commandments and we make them too small. We make them too small. Because tucked within one of these passages, and if you want to read more on what I'm about to share with you here in a moment, I have another book I want to come in. I feel like this is a book sale, but I'll just let you anyway. Bearing God's Name, this is coming off of a dissertation that Carmen Imes wrote. You can take parts and pieces. There's a lot of good meat in here. Uh, but I would encourage to read because she draws out some important things that are evident in this text and evident throughout Scripture. And once you start seeing it, you don't stop seeing it. And here's what it is. First and foremost, when God starts speaking in Exodus 20, and remember, he's speaking so his people can hear him. They hear his voice. He says this, then God spoke all these words. He says, I am the Lord. He starts off with his name again. Hey, by the way, hey, I don't know if you've met. I'm the Lord. Which one? Oh, I'm the Lord who God, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the place of slavery. You don't have any other gods but me. See that? Hey, I'm the one that saved you. Don't have other gods beside me. Don't make an idol for yourself. Elsewhere you'll see it translated, do not make images, graven images for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heaven above or on the earth below, or in the waters under the sea. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now what's interesting about this is God says, I am the God who came, brought you out of Egypt don't have any other gods before me don't make any images this is taken often as something like a graven image something someone would carve an idol something to worship but also many in the church will take this as don't even have an image of God himself don't make anything else up what I would submit to you is don't have any other gods and don't make an image because I've already put my image on earth you don't make an image You don't worship anything else. I'm holy. I saved you. Don't worship anything else. And that's when it leads into number chapter verse seven, where it's translated in the CSB this way: "Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses His name." I don't like that translation. I don't like misuse, and here I am, like, judging and critiquing Hebrew. Here's why. You'll see it elsewhere translated, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Okay? It actually is a verb. It's a hard one. How do you guys interpret that? Have you heard that and thought, oh, that means don't don't use uh, bad words. Don't say the Lord's name when I'm, you know, yelling about the kids or whatever, you know, or maybe they cut me off in traffic. I don't say his name flippantly like that. That's too small. That verb there is nothing about speaking. He could have said, don't say my name in vain. It actually is, don't carry my name in vain. Don't bear my name in vain. I am your God. I saved you. You don't worship other gods. Don't bear my name in vain. What does it mean to bear God's name? And why would we want to try to make that differential? Why would we want to try to distinguish between just saying God's name? Well, to bear God's name, think of it this way. In that time and throughout other places in history, kings would often have a a signet ring. A signet ring. And it had their name on it, especially in Israel with Jewish culture. They'd have their name on it. And they'd have something on the front of it. They'd have their name and they'd have a Lamed. Okay, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an alphabet, a letter. And that lamid indicated possession. And if they took that signet ring and they had anything, that they put wax on and they stamped that ring, you know what that meant? It was theirs. They put their seal on it. And if we fast forward from this passage to what happens in the, in the temple when they begin to talk about the priests, remember, what did God say you are? Kingdom of priests. We read in chapter 20, I'm going to get there, 7, no, nope, I didn't mean that, didn't mean that, 28, in chapter 28, God is describing the priestly garments, and in chapter 28, he starts to talk about the the breast piece that that the priests are going to wear, and he talks about them wearing uh, four rows of stones. And to pick it up in verse 17, and he says four rows of stones, four rows of stones on them. First row should be a row of uh, carnelian, topaz, emerald, second row. He talks about all the different kind of gemstones they're going to have on them. And then it says they should be uh, adorned with gold filigree in their setting. And they're 12 stones, and they're supposed to have correspond to the names of Israel's sons. Each stone, uh, stone must be engraved like a seal, engraved like a seal with one of the names of the twelve tribes. You're to make a braided chain of pure gold, fashion these two golds for the breast piece, and attach them. And you fast forward down here to verse 29. Whenever he enters the sanctuary, Aaron is to carry the names of Israel. He has their names on him. And if you look elsewhere, the priest also has another name on his forehead. Do you know what it is? Yahweh. So the priest bears God's name to the people and represents them. And he takes the people, and he goes before God, and he intercedes for them. And then we look back at the Ten Commandments, and we see God say, Do not bear my name in vain. You're my kingdom of priests. Don't bear it in vain. Who are God's people? Who are the people that bear God's name? Who are the people that God is saying, you're my kingdom of priests? Well, they are the people that are covenanted with him. Those who have come before God as in Exodus 24 and 38 and gone through this covenant ceremony. They have heard what God required of them that they said, you will obey me. And in verse 3 of chapter 24 said, we will do everything that Lord has commanded. And then at the end of that that passage, in verses 7 and 8, Moses goes to a ceremony. He takes the covenant scroll, reads it aloud. They respond, we will do and obey all the Lord has commanded. He then takes the blood from a sacrifice and he splatters it on the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. How many in here were there and got the blood splattered on them? No hands. I see that hand. No, no hands. Okay. The people that we're covenanted with are God's people. Now, not just Israel that was there, don't get that wrong, because it actually God, uh, Moses later talked to the children of those people and says, you were there and heard God face to face, and they weren't all there. So they were covenanted by their family line. But this covenant is not the same Is not the same today, the way God's working with it. And here's what I mean by that. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the Lord talks about this covenant. He talks about the covenant he has with the people. And he says that there's a day that's coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of Egypt. This covenant. My covenant that they broke, even though I'm their master. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. God says, hey, that covenant, that covenant, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm keeping the covenant, but I'm going to do it a little differently. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm not going to do it like this. You know, we're at Sinai. I'm handing you the law. This is how you live as my people. This is how you bear my name. This is what's going on here, right? Bear my name. Don't do it in vain. Here's how you do it right. Now, God says, there's going to be a time where I'm going to actually write the law on their hearts. Ezekiel actually says he takes a heart of stone, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And the ones he does that with are the ones that are in covenant in Christ. See, Jesus was the one who bore God's name perfectly. Jesus is the one that fulfilled the first covenant when christ came. He said I didn't come to destroy the law Nate made a reference to the to uh, the sermon on the mount He said i'm not coming to destroy the law. I fulfill it And in fulfilling the law he kept the covenant and matthew doesn't mess around because the book of matthew clarifies This is jesus who is the perfect israel the son of god It actually shows that he was a baby and Herod wanted to kill him. Remember this story? Maybe you don't. Herod wanted to kill all the babies. And guess what Jesus', what Jesus parents did? Took him to Egypt. Kind of like a reverse. Took him into Egypt. And then when the threat was over, they took him out of Egypt and they followed the path back to the promised land. And when they came back home, uh, Jesus was baptized. He was, he was washed in the waters like Israel through the Red Sea. And once he was baptized, he went into the wilderness. As Israel came through the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness. Jesus goes in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights fasting. Anybody here making it 40 days, 40 nights fasting? I haven't tried it. He's weak. He's frail. He has to put all his trust on God. Israel went three days and they were yelling at God. Jesus went 40. 40. And what happened after that 40 days is Satan came and he tempted Jesus. And it's notable what happens. He comes and says, hey, here's some stone. Make some bread. You can eat. I know you're hungry. Jesus' power, make the bread. Could he have done it? Sure. He goes out healing people. He gives people sight. He could make some bread. But what does Jesus respond with? He says this. Hey, man, Satan, it's written. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know where he gets that quote? Deuteronomy 8.3. Moses told his people, remember in the wilderness when God gave you bread so that he would teach you that man must not live by, every, by bread alone, but by the word of the Lord. Okay, fine, Jesus. All right, cool. You did better than, than Israel here. I got another one for you. The devil took him up to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said, look, you're the son of God. Throw yourself down. For it's written, he'll give his angels orders concerning you. Jesus, (laughs) Satan is a angel of light. He can quote scripture. And he does. He says it. He'll give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus hears that and he goes, that's cool. But guess what? It's also written do not test the lord your god. You know where that's from? Did around me when Moses said that you tested God in the wilderness. Remember we talked about this last week when they put God on trial? Jesus said we don't test God. All right, fine, Jesus. You're not going to test him. I hear that. One more thing. We're going to go on this high mountain. Look at the entire kingdoms of all the world. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. Go away, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus bore God's name perfectly. Jesus was in the wilderness and he fulfilled the law. And then he goes up to the mount on the Sermon on the Mount. And he speaks. Not like Moses. We say he's the greater Moses, but in a way he's not even Moses. Because Moses had to go hear God and say, hey God, this is what God said. He didn't come out and say, hey listen, the Lord says this. You know what Jesus said? You've heard it this way, but I tell you. He spoke as one with authority. Jesus had authority. And in Philippians 2, 7-11, we see as he came to earth and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9 of chapter 2, for this reason, God gave him, highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name. So that when we bear the name of Christ, we bear the most holy name of them all. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is now the name above every name. Jesus is Lord. Oh, and by the way, in First Peter chapter one, verse two, he tells you this: "Beloved, if you were in Christ, he says, "You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. You're in the covenant." Just like Moses sprinkled the blood. If you're trusting in Christ today and you're trusting in his perfect satisfaction of the law, you are covenant with God. And those who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation are in that covenant. They've been sprinkled and they bear the holy name of Jesus Christ before the world that is in bondage to sin. You're bearing the name that is above every name. But why does God have a people that bears his name? To be priests. To be priests. To be those that would go out before the world. That would go out and, and, and demonstrate who God is to a watching world. And Israel failed over and over again at that. They are a demonstration of not, in fact, bearing his name well and not in vain, but profaning his name. Ezekiel talks about that in chapter 36, where they profaned my holy name. Reading verses 20 on, it says, When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my name because it was said to them, They are my people of the Lord, yet they had to leave his land in exile. Then I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel, profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among the nations. The nations will know what that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. Leviticus is about all the ways that you can profane God's name. And he says, don't do it. And almost in a direct quote Peter wants us to be very clear about how and why we carry God's name when he says in chapter 2 of his letter and Peter went through a revelation because he didn't even he wasn't even sure that God's covenant would come to the Gentiles but he now writes this letter and he includes the Gentiles and he says this that you are and listen to this language a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his possession so that you, why, why, why are you all those things? Why are we his possession? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have not received mercy, but now you have received his mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the gentiles. For what reason? So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Does your life lead others to glorify God? Do they see you and ask about a hope within you? See, God looks at you and gives you grace and mercy, and he sees us in our sin, but he doesn't want to leave you there. When it says that God is a jealous God, it's not that he's jealous because he's like, hey, I really want what you have. You know, he's like, Nate, you got a sweet car. Wish I could drive it. Look at that new ride. That's not what he's thinking. That's been a stumbling block for some people. God's jealousy is one of a husband whose wife is running astray into danger and death and destruction he wants her attention back he's jealous for our for our worship for us to glorify him and him only and he says go Go and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them in my name and command them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So, what about grace? How do we live holy? Why does it matter? How do we do all these things? Well, I'll tell you this. First, you can look at Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus talks about. But I'll also say this. There's a couple of verses I'd point us to. In 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. God says, listen, I want you to be holy. You need to be sober-minded. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Don't follow after those things in the world. But as one who has called you as holy, you also are to be holy in all conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. The same question was asked to Paul. What about grace? Can't we sin all the more so grace can abound? He said, no, let it not be. Because you were called to be holy as God is. And he says this in Romans chapter 12, verses one through two. In view of the mercies of God, because God has shown you mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember all those laws about sacrifice? You offer yourself. I urge you, to be holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Here's what I submit to you in closing. God has shown us immeasurable amounts of grace and mercy but he calls us to holiness. Ephesians 2 tells us the same thing. For by grace you're saved through faith. Through faith, It's not of yourselves. It's, it's a gift, not from works. But he does it why? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us. But like Israel, we're wandering in the wilderness and need to know and learn what is the will of God. He's written it in our hearts. He's put it in his word that we would sit at his feet and hear from him but that we would always and ever pursue holiness. God said, people, the world would know you by your love for one another. That people would look at you and think, what is the hope that you have in you? That like Peter said, they they would see you and they would worship God and glorify him on the day of visitation. And far too many professing believers are comfortable profaning his name. And how we live, and our words, and our work, and our relationships, we're far too comfortable. And my prayer for you is that we might look, we would all sit before the Holy God, not compare ourselves to one another. There's plenty of people that you could probably look at and say, I'm I'm doing better than you. But we would compare ourselves to a Holy God and we would love and trust and follow in obedience a God who doesn't want to leave us in our sin but wants to bring us to life in him and bear his name well. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have demonstrated for us in scripture your desire for our holiness and you have shown us in scripture and you have put it on our hearts the wisdom to follow and obey you. Lord, maybe we'd be quick to hear. May we be quick to study and read and learn. And God, would you show us your wisdom that we'd be quick to obey Lord? that we could love you more deeply and we could be more holy like you, that you would form us from one degree of glory to the next, that we might look more like Christ every day. And we ask all
1: this in his name. Amen.